Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought the firstborn of the flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. King James Version says its desire is to have you. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened his mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold. You have driven me today away from the ground and from your face, and I shall be hidden, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city city after the name of his son Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahuhahel, and Mahuhahel fathered Methuselah, and Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the other one was Zillah. Adah bore Jubal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Yubal. He was the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Naamah. Lamach said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For he said, God, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. For Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you 
and we give you praise. We pray that you make this book, these words, alive to our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are awake and you are paying much attention, you say, what's wrong with Brian today? He usually does his introduction first, then he reads. Well, I wanted to make sure I shake it up a little bit to make sure you're with me. In the 1970s, there was a famous saying, my main man. In the 80s, it was just my man. If something needed to be done, one might say, I know a man. If there was any doubt and someone would say, you sure this person can do the job? We might respond, he will come through because that's my man. That colloquialism has gone, and now we just say, my guy. I know a guy, or that's my guy. Though the words have changed, the concept still remains the same. Everyone who wants to have a man in their life that they can put their hope in. Someone who can get the job done. In the situation of the first man, Adam and Eve, they were looking for their hope in a son. Was it going to be the first son? Was it going to be the second son? Or was it going to be the third son? Or should they have looked for another? Sin has a story to tell. The narrative we will read today is about sin and its consequences. Yet Moses wrote this narrative to remind the children of Israel that in the end, God will deal with sin. Sin, the devil, and death will be conquered through one man. God promised that the victory would be from the seed of a woman. As we read today, we will highlight that sin and its destructiveness, sin and its deception, and sin and its death. We are starting a new series, like I said, and we will study the first few chapters in Genesis. The title of this sermon, or the title of the sermon series, are Lessons Learned in the Wilderness. We will not study the Exodus and the excursion of the Promised Land, but what, what lessons did Moses try to teach the children of Israel just before they entered the Promised Land? The children of Israel were in the wilderness, and Moses wrote this law to instruct them. They had been steeped in Egyptian culture, and they were about to enter the land of Canaan. They were chosen to be a light to the nations, and if they were going to succeed in that mission, they would have to reflect the light of God. And the only way they could be done, or the only way this can be done, was that the principles of the law would be lived out in their lives. This is why Moses reminded them of these words just before they entered the promised land. Please read with me Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 to 11. Verse 6 says, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all the people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. The faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. They were commanded to obey the law. They shall not steal. They shall not bear false witness. The section of scripture we'll study today is called narrative. It is an important genre of scripture and it makes up about half the Bible. Actually, 43% is made up of narrative. The stories written in the Bible illustrate the rewards of obedience and the consequences of disobedience. We will discover, discover that the passage we're looking at this morning illustrates the breaking of many of God's laws and their far-reaching consequences. But first, there are elements of a story we can highlight in order to understand what the Lord is communicating to us. In a story, we can focus on plot or the setting or conflict, all of those things help us to understand a narrative text. But this morning we will hone in on two elements of a story, characters and theme. Again, we must emphasize that the children of Israel were fully formed by the Egyptian culture. Each culture has its principles and that's natural, but it becomes a problem when those principles run contrary to biblical principles. That is why God's law is important. It is a mirror that shows us our sin, and it's also a compass that points us to the solution. Saints, we have to be very careful and recognize that all of us are shaped not by Egyptian culture, but by American culture. How well are we doing with recognizing this? Have you believed the lie that American culture is synonymous with living a life by biblical principles? We have to read and study our Bibles. The more we read and study, the more we will see that this world is at war with God and his word. Some of us commit to reading the Bible through every year. Some of us do that in this congregation. But as a church body, we read through the scriptures every two years. Not just reading a little bit at a time, but not just reading a little bit, but completing the Bible by the end of 2022. There are many benefits to reading the Bible often. The one that is relevant for us this morning, though, is no matter where you are, you need to understand that the world is adamantly opposed to the life of pleasing that's pleasing to God. Every world system, whether you're in Kiev, 
Tokyo or Albany is at enmity with God and his people. So before we jump into the text, we want to spotlight three characters in this narrative. And oftentimes we forget the main character of every narrative is God alone. So we have Cain, we have God, and then we have Eve. Although Eve was one of the major characters in Genesis 3, her role has been reduced in chapter 4. So we will start with Cain and end with Eve. So study with me, go back with me to Genesis chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 1, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. Cain was given that name because it sounds like the Hebrew word forgotten or acquired. Cain is immediately contrasted to his brother Abel. His brother Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain was a worker of the ground. Cain was the oldest and followed in his father's footsteps. Both Adam and Cain were farmers. As time went by, both Cain and Abel brought an offering to the Lord. Now again, we must look carefully at the scriptures. For many commentators are going to interpret the scriptures to us before we take a strong look at the words that are here. And sometimes if you've read the commentaries, then you have the commentaries in your mind and you bring them to the text like this commentary. And then you read, you say, oh, I understand. Oh, no, you only understand because of your presuppositions. Let's see what is in the text. Right. It's easier for us to conclude things that we see in the text instead of things that are not in the text. Let's ask a few questions of the text. Adam was a farmer. Cain was a farmer. Was there anything wrong with being a farmer? Wasn't this the first job given to the first human? And if you spend your time and talent in one area, shouldn't your offering come from that area? Now, we may not understand that today because if you work with, with, with oranges, you don't bring oranges to the church. The oranges are converted to currency and you bring the currency, what we call now dollars, right, to the church. Well, if you're in Africa, South Africa is the rand and other places is yen and all the places like that. But your, what you spend your time in converts to currency. And that, in this particular case, it didn't convert to currency. It's what you brought. So it says, there, there, so it says, let's look at the text here. It says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep, sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. That's verse two. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and their, their fat portions. There was nothing inherently evil about tilling the ground. And Abel's offering was not superior because God had later instituted, instituted a sacrificial system to atone for sin. I know that we've been taught that. 
we say, oh, I know why. It's because uh, he brought some cherries and he brought some animals. And see, animals all the way in Exodus and Leviticus. But is that really what the text says? Let's look at it. It says, and again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. This is the first mention of giving in the Bible. We are informed in other places that we need to give in proportion of how we have been blessed. Those things are fresh in our mind because we're going through 2 Corinthians now. We have been informed that we need to be a cheerful giver. That's in, the, that's in that book as well. And those who sow sparingly will also reap sparingly. These principles provide us with a clue as to what was wrong with Cain and his offering. But a side question, what do you do? What do you labor in? Whatever you do, God is expecting fruit from that labor. We are so preoccupied with how much to give, we miss the more weighty matters when it comes to giving. Ask yourself, if I was to put a value on what God has done for me, how much would it cost? You make $100 and you give God $10 offering. Is that what your redemption is worth? Are you giving with a cheerful heart? Do you actually view giving as a privilege granted to you by the king of heaven? Or do you see it as a chore or maybe another bill to pay? If the Holy Spirit has used part of the narrative to shine light on your attitude around giving, then repent and resolve to give abundantly. Let's look at this verse carefully. Let's look closely at the word order in verses 4 and 5. Verse 4 says, And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Did you notice that it didn't say the Lord had regard for Abel's offering? It said the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Now we read that and we go, Abel's offering. But the word order says Abel and his offering. And then you read on and it says, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. God was more interested in the heart of the person giving. God did not have regard for Cain. We have to read on further to understand this rejection by God. In verse 6, God says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? It was not the offering that was the problem, but it was Cain's heart. Isn't that true in life? It's not necessarily what we do. It's the intention behind what we do. If we do well, will you not be accepted? It is not the offering. As we look at a quote from William Perkins, he was called the father of Puritanism. He says in his volume, verse 6 of his works, he stated, In countenance and gesture, 
All such signs are evidently decipher the malicious affections lurking in the heart. He goes on to reference this text. Those malicious affections that were lurking in Cain's heart was the problem. And the events that followed, including the murder of his brother Abel, was just a natural consequence of those affections. And here we see the destructiveness of sin. Sin is destructive. The sin in Cain's heart caused him to kill his brother. This is significant because this sets the precedent of how siblings will react to each other in future generations. Sin unleashes civil rivalry, sibling rivalry. This is unbridled civil civil rivalry, sibling rivalry. It must be addressed and God confronts Cain. The Israelite parents needed to be reminded that this was going to be the natural result of the fall. Parents will never be able to stop it, sibling rivalry. But the law puts a constraint on this so that every son does not rise up and kill his brother. If there's a harmful sibling rivalry in your family, then someone must step up and be the parent or the responsible adult and address the parties. I would like you to notice that God confronted Cain before the slaying of his brother. We will swing back around to the character of God, but for right now, let us continue with Cain. Cain refused to repent, and he ended up being the first murderer ever recorded in Scripture. Sin promotes death. In verse 9, God asked, where's your brother Abel? Where's Abel, your brother? Cain's response, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? This response from Cain reveals his deep animosity for what the Lord did. The Lord accepted Abel. Why these exact words from Cain? Why couldn't he just say, I don't know where he's at. I don't know where my brother is. I don't know where that tall guy is. I don't know where that short guy is. Why? Brothers keeper. Remember that Abel was a keeper of sheep. Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? I am not a keeper like him. I know you like that keeper, but I'm not a keeper. Don't compare me to him. Don't associate with me with him. Don't put my name and his title in the same sentence. Don't connect us together. We don't go together. He's different than I am. I'm a tiller, not a keeper. These are some things that probably Cain thought about. You always loved him more. You only cared about his accomplishments, not mine. It can go on and on and on. To some degree, we can see this played out in every family. But God did not compare Cain to Abel. But that was the way Cain twisted it. That was the way sin in his heart twisted it. This is the deceptiveness of sin. Sin is not only destructive, it is also deceptive. We will deal with that text. But let us finish with the destructiveness of sin. Now Cain killed his brother and lied to God about it. Because of Cain's sin, he is now cursed. His father was cursed, or if you like, the consequence of his father's actions 
was that he would have to work the ground hard. He would have to labor. But Cain's curse was that no matter how hard you work the ground, it would never provide sustenance for you. So he will have to wander from place to place finding food. Cain has been reduced to a fugitive and a wanderer. If that was not enough, Cain also went away from the presence of the Lord. This is probably worse than being a fugitive, forever barred from the presence of the Lord. Sin separates us from God. Right? It's, it's one thing to be kicked out of your house. Many of you probably never been like that. But I'm telling you, it's one thing to be kicked out of your house. But in the back of your mind, you can always go, you know what, if it gets really bad, I can go back home. Right? Isn't that the prodigal son? Man, this is horrible. This is really bad. Even my servants of my father is better to, has better life than this. I'm going home. The worst thing in the world is to be kicked out and can't come back. Sin separates us from God. Sin is that gulf that keeps us captive and barred from the God of heaven. But God has promised to deal with that mighty gulf that stands between him and us. God's got a man. And he's able to completely save to the uttermost. As we get back to the text, verse 17 starts the genealogy of Cain. The not so obvious destruction or destructiveness of consequences of sin are found in the short description of his descendants. Cain is a murderer, but his family members sink deeper into the abyss of sin. The first person to be a polygamist is from the descendants of Cain. And Lamech kills a man for hitting him and he brags that God will protect him more than he protected Cain. So this is this is increased this this sin is increasingly heinous. Now he kills his brother, but this guy, maybe you could say, well, there was a reason. Maybe there was some kind of reason somewhere. But this guy, somebody scuffles his foot or maybe bumps up against him and he kills him. This is the sin. Sin doesn't stay the same. It just gets increasingly worse. We sin and we can't determine the consequences of sin. They are more heinous than we could ever imagine. Sin is not something to play with like a toy. We must hate it and repent of it. We also see the destructiveness of sin in this narrative. Sin is deceptive too. Most, character, most characterizations of sin has a picture, in this case, it has a picture of a lion. Sin is crouching. We go, and we go to Perkins again, I'm quoting from Perkins again, and he says that in, in, his, verse, in his volume five, he, he uses a borrowed speech from wild beasts, who so long as they are sleeping, stir not. But being awakened, they fly in a man's face and rend out his throat. It is a, such a violent and graphic picture, but that is what Moses wants the children of Israel to remember about sin. Though it seems harmless when it lies dormant, when it is awakened, it is deadly and it causes permanent 
damage. What's wrong with your thoughts? No one can see them, and they are not hurting anyone. But what we learn from Scripture is that out of the issues of the heart and the mouth speaks, those thoughts will eventually be lived out. They may not be as destructive as murder, but they will be damaging. Repent of those destructive thoughts and resolve to bring it to the Lord. Now let us look at our next character, the maker of heaven and earth. You might, you might have heard it said the God of the Old Testament was harsh, but the God of the New Testament is gracious. Or there was no grace in the Old Testament. There was no grace in the Bible until the grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Well, when we're finished studying, let me know if you see that in this narrative. Adam and Eve sinned. God used questions to get them to see their sin and repent. Instead, Adam hid and shifted the blame to Eve. When Cain sinned, God asked Cain, why are you angry and why have your face fallen? Cain did not repent, but got angry. This is a sure sign that we are babes in Christ. When God or others confront us in our sin, how do we respond? If we are honest, we oftentimes respond like Cain. We get angry and we hate the ones who do the right thing. We compare ourselves to them and then blame God. How dare she tell me not to be doing X, Y, and Z when she does X, Y, and Z or A, B, and C? Well, what does that have, whatever she does, what does that have to do with the sin that I do? Maybe God is sending that A, B, C person so you can deal with your X, Y, Z doesn't have to be a perfect person, right? But how do we respond? We should respond by repenting. Last quote from Perkins. It says, in like manner, the sins which we commit lie at the door of our heart, though you feel them not. And if you do not repent or, or, or prevent the danger by speedy repentance, God will make you feel them. Those of us who have walked with the Lord, but sometimes have had the experience of God whispering a question to our conscience. He often does it during preaching of the word, or even sometimes right in the middle of our sin, let us be aware of God's ways and his people, that her sin, that that sin will find us out. Nothing in life happens if by chance. Though we may have misread it, does not mean that we don't understand it. Here again, we go straight to Eve and we look at our minor character. And you're probably saying, well, you spent a lot of time on Cain, a little bit of time on God. Now you're going to spend an hour on Eve. No, just a little bit. Eve had a very minor part. It says, I've gotten a man from the Lord. 
I thought that was strange. Did you think that's strange? When's the last time you heard someone give birth and say, I've gotten a man from the Lord? We call them by a couple of names, babies maybe. You know, I don't know, I don't know baby names, but, you know, we may call them little man, but never a man. What is this about? What is this about? What is, what, what is, what, what is this about? Well, what do you think Eve was thinking at this time? The last character is Eve. She made two statements, right? I've gotten a man. And the last one. We'll, we'll look at the last one later. She makes it at the end. She says, I've gotten a man. Does that seem strange to you? What mother does that? I've acquired a man from the Lord. What is this about? Well, we have to go back to chapter 3 in order to understand it. Chapter 3, God said, you, out of your seed, your seed will crush the head of the devil. So was it the firstborn son? Was that the promise being fulfilled? It sure sounds like Eve thought that. The devil that has deceived her and made her life miserable. How many times have she been thinking about the decision she made? When we sin and the consequences come upon us, don't we kind of ponder that? How in the world? Why, why did I do that? Why in the world did I make that decision? How could I have allowed myself to be tricked by that old devil? I think she was thinking about this a lot. Now she delivers a baby. What do you think is on her mind? Ah, you better believe it. God has sent me that man who will get Satan back for what he did to me and all of us. But Eve was wrong. Seth wasn't even the seed. The seed of Satan and the seed of the woman came from the same womb. Is the first time you ever heard that? The way of Cain, we read in the book of Jude, the way of Cain. When you follow the line of Cain, you're going to find all of those enemies of God's people came from the line of Cain. Good Bible study. Go look it up. Philistines. Herod. Did they all come? All came from the line of Cain. Seed of Cain. But Jesus' line didn't come from Cain. Jesus' line came from Seth. Eve misread the will of God for her life. If you've been walking with the Lord for some time, you have misread the will of God for your life. It can be heartbreaking at times. Oh, I know. It can make us discouraged. I know about that too. Even to the point of questioning our salvation, but don't despair if it happened to David when he thought he was going to build a temple, if it happened to Peter when he thought he was going to save Jesus from the cross, then it, and it happened to Eve when she thought this was the promised seed, just know it can happen and it does happen to us. Be encouraged. Just because you don't know God's will for your life or have misread it doesn't mean that God did not have a plan for your life. God has a plan for your life. So just say amen. When you feel like your dreams are about to die, remind yourself that God is not a man. He cannot lie. 
Actually, if you were able to discern all of God's will for your life, you would be God. So let's let God be God because no one's compared to him. And let every man be a liar. Nothing in your life happens by chance. Though you may have misread, it does not mean something happened by accident. Going to read the Belgian Confession about God's ways. Article number 13 talks about that. But God is faithful. He did send a man, but it wasn't Cain, and it wasn't Abel. Eve said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. This is true, but he, Seth, wasn't the seed either to crush Satan's head. Seth was the third born, and his name meant appointed. But what was the appointed? But he was not appointed to crush the devil's head. No, God had a man that he appointed to be the savior of the world. But it wasn't Seth. His name was Jesus. Or, as my friend likes to say, Yeshu. He was the right man on our side, a man of God's own choosing. I got a man. Oh, it's not somebody I grew up with. I got a man. I got a man I wanted to introduce you to. He's a friend of sinners. He opened up my blinded eyes and he set my spirit free. And all I want to talk about is the man from Galilee. This is the promised Messiah, the one that was promised in Genesis 3 and the one Eve was looking for in Genesis 4. There are many life lessons in this narrative, but all the scriptures point to Christ. And Moses wants to keep the motif of the coming of the promised seed right before our eyes. Their eyes first, now our eyes. Sin separates us from God. Adam and Eve were separated from God. And as soon as they ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, all of their offsprings, all of their offsprings is now separated from the presence of God because we inherited that sin nature from our first parents. There's nothing we can do to alleviate our condition. We can make it a little, we can't even make it a little better by doing righteous deeds. As a matter of fact, our good deeds make our condition worse. You say, how can that be? How can doing good Make it worse. Because when we do good, we feel like, yes, I'm in a better standing with the Lord. No, you're not. No, we're not. Our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in the sight of God. Our righteousness is insufficient. We need a foreign righteousness, something outside of ourselves. For the Christian, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Nest on Christ, the solid rock we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. If you now discover that God, by his Holy Spirit, is reaching out to you and informing your conscience that God is holy and no one measures to that holiness... And for nothing good I have, whereby thy grace to claim, I wash my garments white in Calvary's blood or Calvary's lamb. If that's where you are, then embrace Christ and pray with me 
this prayer, Jesus, I repent of my sin and ask you to be my savior. I just came here this morning to remind us and inform others that the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, Romans 1 says. How can we be saved from the wrath of God that has been poured out on all human flesh? Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God has been satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. The Christian life is a life of substitution. Jesus Christ became sin for us who knew no sin so that him, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But that was a big claim. But Christ rising from the grave was the evidence that Jesus that, that Jesus is the truth and the life, and no one will see the Father except by him. As we conclude, as we wrap up, let's remember that sin is destructive. We see that in the life of Cain, how he killed his brother and blamed God. Am I my brother's keeper? Aren't you his keeper? That's not my job to look after my brother. It actually is your job. And it's our job as well. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves, and our family as our closest neighbor. How can we say we love God who we don't see and ignore our neighbor who we do see? Sin is also deceptive. We can be fooled by the dormancy of sin. Just because we can't see its destructive effects right away doesn't mean they don't exist. For we walk by faith. And not by sight. Now we see dimly, but when he returns, we shall see clearly, for we shall see him face to face. We shall see him as he is. And God is merciful and gracious. God describes himself this way so that this quality he wants us to remember. Come to Christ and let him forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Who can wash away my sin? No one but the man Christ Jesus. Who can make me whole within? No one but the man Christ Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other man I know, no one but the man Christ Jesus. Put your trust in Christ. The God-man who can get the job done and do it completely. Let's pray. Oh, our forgetful soul, awake from your wandering dream. Turn from chasing vanities. Look forward. Look forward.
forward and upward. Let us view ourselves in light of God's holy word, immortal, invisible, God only wise, and light and accessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. O Heavenly Father, you are incomprehensible, but prayer hearing God, known but beyond knowledge. Revealed but unrevealed, our wants and welfare draws us to you. O oh God, attend us in every part of our arduous and trying pilgrimage. We need the same counsel, defense, comfort that we found at our beginning. Let our faith be more obvious to our conscience, more perceptible to those around us. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Jesus, while we are representing, while you are representing us in heaven, let us reflect you on earth. While you plead our cause, may we show forth your praise. You have led us, and we have found thy promise true. We have been sorrowful, but you have been our help. Fearful, but you have delivered us. Despairing, but you have lifted us up. Your words of assurance are ever before us, and we praise you, O God. O God, you injured, neglected, provoked benefactor. When we think of your greatness and your goodness, we are ashamed at our insensibility. We blush to lift our face, for we are foolishly erred. We confess that you have not been in our thoughts. We don't thank you, Lord, for the air we breathe. That the knowledge of you as the end of our being has been strangely overlooked. That we have not seriously considered our heart need. Lord, break the fatal enchantment that binds our affections. They cling to Egypt. We cling to America. And bring us to a happy mind that rests in you. And may our happiness be entwined in doing your will and not in our comforts and not in our nationalities. Let your spirit teach us the vital lesson of Christ for we are slow to learn. Make us wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.